2 Kings chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to tell you a story from there. 2 Kings chapter 6 gives us one of the great scenes from the life of the prophet Elisha, one of these great sort of miracle-working, uh, truth-telling uh, prophets uh, in, in the Old Testament. And in 2 Kings 6, the king of Syria is planning to raid Israel, right? just causing trouble, seeking control, and to suppress them. But Elisha, the prophet, keeps warning the king of the plans of the Syrian army and, and so keeps thwarting Syria's plans. And so the king of Syria gets frustrated and he decides he's going to capture Elisha. So he mounts this whole mission, gets his armies and his horses and his chariots and goes to the city where he finds out that Elisha is staying, the city of Dothan. And so he's, it's a high stakes, large scale military campaign to capture one man just to get the prophet Elisha out of the way so that then maybe his plans would succeed. And so Elisha's servant wakes up one morning and walks out of the camp to find the city surrounded by horses and chariots and armies, obviously armed to the nines and ready to strike. And he is, not surprisingly, afraid. He panics and he cried out to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said to his servant, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Which on the surface sounds ridiculous, because he's like, okay, I'm pretty sure it's you and me. And there's a whole army. Did you not hear me just say that we're surrounded by this army of these horses and chariots and soldiers? And so Elisha prays, and he asks God to open the eyes of his fearful servant just for a moment. And the Lord answers the prayer. In 2 Kings 6, 17, it says this. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the eyes of the servant were opened to get a, a peek behind the veil, if you will, of the material world and into the spiritual realm where the spiritual reality of the armies of God, these angelic hosts, were just for a moment visible to him. And so the perspective totally changed. One moment we were surrounded and besieged, and what are we going to do? And the next moment, oh, wait a minute. There's a whole host of heavenly armies surrounding us. And so it changed everything. That is basically what is happening in the book of Revelation. We've done chapters 1 through 3, and, and several weeks, seven weeks of that was just these individual messages to local churches in Asia Minor. And so you could get the impression that we're in a, it felt kind of normal in a way. We're just delivering exhortations to churches. But don't forget that even those messages to these churches were a part of this grand and, uh, and lofty and strange vision that God gave to the Apostle John. And in this vision, throughout the book of Revelation, uh, what is happening and, and what we get to do is essentially peek behind the veil, like Elisha's servant did for just a moment. You see, there's one view of reality, a merely physical, material view, that we have. We can only see what we can see. We can only feel what we can feel, right? And so the things that, uh, that are visible to us are the material sort of physical aspects of the world. And then there's heaven's view. There's a, a spiritual 
realm. It's, it's heaven's perspective of the same reality where what we can see is not all that there is. And in fact, what's ultimately true and real is often hidden from our sight. So the things that we can see are in some ways not even the most real things that exist. In the vision that God gave to John in Revelation, he peels back the veil into the spiritual realm, giving us a view of human history from the spiritual perspective. We aren't seeing predominantly future events that have yet to be. There are certainly things within Revelation that are of things that are yet to come. But mostly, I think, we are witnessing the history of the world, but from the vantage point of the throne of the Almighty. I think that's what we get in the book of Revelation. And that throne is the centerpiece of our text for today, Revelation chapter 4. So I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't already. Revelation chapter 4. Now I began the series in, Reve uh, in Revelation uh, in January, and to this point I haven't given you an outline of the book, um, but I think it would be helpful for you to have one. I didn't actually print this out. I might print it and bring it with me next time, uh, or I could email it to you, but I'm going to just verbally walk you through real quick the way that the book of Revelation is sort of broken down. In chunks, feel free to, to scribble these notes down. If you, if you have one of those scripture journals, it would be a good thing to write on that, that inside that blank page before the text begins. Um, and I'm borrowing largely from uh, a scholar named uh, William Hendrickson in this. There's different ways that the book of Revelation can be laid out, but I have found this one to be extremely helpful and clear and giving you kind of bite-sized chunks to, to understand. Basically, there's seven sections. Maybe that shouldn't surprise you with the, the emphasis on the number seven and the symbolism of that already. There's seven sections in the book of Revelation. The first is chapters one through three, which deal with the seven lampstands. That is the seven churches. And so that's what we've covered thus far. Chapters four through seven concerns the book with seven seals. The book with seven seals or a scroll. That was the book that they had back then. Chapters eight through 11 contain seven trumpets of judgment. Seven trumpets of judgment. Chapters 12 through 14 paint a story, a, a vivid, symbolic story of the woman, the dragon, and the beasts. The woman, the dragon, and the beasts take up chapters 12 through 14. Chapters 15 and 16, we find seven bowls of wrath. We've already had seven seals and seven trumpets, and now we have seven bowls of God's wrath in chapters 15 and 16. In chapters 17 through 19, we see the fall of Babylon and the beasts. This will all make more sense when we get closer to it. And then the final section, chapters 20 through 22, we see the final fall of Satan and the establishing of the new Jerusalem. The fall of Satan and the establishing of the new Jerusalem. So those are the, the seven uh, general sections of the book of Revelation. And again, if you didn't get every word of that, that's okay. Uh, you can talk to me later and I'll help you fill in the blanks. I'll email this. Maybe I'll print some out for you next time. Um, but that's a, a bit of the overview. I think that Revelation follows a, a, a structure of parallelism. Parallelism. Where each of those seven sections, rather than being arranged as a chronological sequence, like one taking place right after the other, in terms of a chronology, 
Each of those seven sections represents the entire age of human history between the two comings of Christ, between his first coming 2,000 years ago and his second coming yet in the future when he will come to judge the living and the dead and usher in his eternal kingdom. And so I believe that each of these seven sections really covers that entire span of human history. So obviously some of that has to do with things that have already happened. And some of it has to do with realities that are presently visible right now. And some of it has to do with things that we are still waiting for uh, to happen in the future. And so each of these seven sections is parallel to the others. So for example... Christ's return at the conclusion of human history is not depicted once at the end of the book of Revelation. It's depicted six times at the end of each of these sections, with the lone exception of the, of the first section of the dealing with seven lampstands, the seven churches. Although even that dealt, drew heavily from that vision of the future to come and the promises that, of Christ uh, to his people in eternity. Now, none of that is immediately relevant to our text for today, for Revelation 4. But with this text, we sort of embark uh, on the journey through these distinct sections of the book and their parallel structure. And so it seemed appropriate to, to me uh, to, to give you a bit of the lay of the land, if you will, as we uh, embark. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are really a unit. Um, but we're going to break it down into two parts, just for the sake of clarity and simplicity. So uh, chapter 4, we'll look at today, chapter 5, we'll look at next week, is really the, the back end of this same little uh, unit. So let me read for you Revelation chapter 4, all 11 verses of this chapter, and then we'll walk through it together. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne... On each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. May God bless this word to us today. What we have in chapters 4 and 5 is not so much an unfolding narrative as the lens or the filter through which to view the narratives that will unfold in the following chapters. If Revelation is the spiritual perspective on the world and human history, then chapters 4 and 5 is our orientation. This is the starting point. This is, okay, everything that's about to follow Here's the lens through which to see it. This is what you need to remember with every image that is described to you. We are to look at the events on earth and the entire course of human history from the vantage point of the throne of God Almighty. The throne of God. The chapter begins saying that he looked and he saw a door standing open in heaven. If you have a text that you're willing to mark up or highlight, I would highlight that phrase, a door standing open in heaven. That is a recurring theme in the book of Revelation. You'll find, uh, I think, six other times where that phrase is used, that something was standing open. And it usually marks the the beginning or a a key turning point in kind of a new section. In, in the book of Revelation. And so this door standing open marks the beginning of this portion of John's vision. And the door that's open leads right into heaven, right into the throne room of God. And so as he walks through this door, as it were, in this vision, this is what he begins to see. And he hears the voice, once again, of the risen Lord Jesus, the one who called to him back in chapter 1. He described his voice there like the sound of a trumpet. And Jesus calls to him again and says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And again, we've addressed the timeline issue already. I think what must take place after this doesn't necessarily mean that everything he's about to see is yet in the future. Because, in fact, the very first thing he sees is this throne room vision. And God was already on his throne before this vision started. There are certain things that have already happened. There are certain things that are happening even now. And there are certain things that are yet to come in the future. So when he says... I will show you what must take place after this. I think he's just referring to within the context of this vision. Here's the next thing I will show you, is essentially uh, what he means there. And it reminds us of the commission that John received from Jesus in John chapter, uh, excuse me, Revelation 1, 11, and then again in 1, 19, to write what you see in a book. That was the commission that, that Jesus gave to John. I'm going to show you things, and you are to write what you see. Which helps us perhaps to to remember that what we are reading are verbal descriptions of visual information. So we shouldn't stress the text too much in terms of a literal, like, word-for-word parallel to something in, in what that we would see in our world. It's not necessarily that literal. In fact, just the very exercise of trying to describe something that you've seen is not as easy as you think. I could ask you right now to close your eyes and envision, say, a tree with a squirrel on it eating an acorn. And then if I were to say, okay, now turn to your neighbor and describe that scene as though they've never seen a tree or a squirrel or an acorn, 
you get some pretty, it's a little harder than it sounds. Well, it's like big and brown and it's kind of, t it's tall, but then there's these green leafy looking things on it. Wait, what's a leaf? You don't know what a leaf is? Okay. So they're kind of like little clusters of puffy paper. I don't know. Like you get weird descriptions. How do you describe a squirrel if you've never seen a squirrel, right? And so this is what we're getting in the book of Revelation. And I don't mean that to say that what, what we find in Revelation is clumsy. I just think I, what I intend to convey is that we need to not try to make the words of Revelation mean something that they don't intend. Right? We want to understand that what we're seeing here or what we're reading are descriptions of something that John saw. And the very things that he sees are signifying other realities, symbolizing other realities. So we need to keep that in mind as we go. So here is an open door into heaven itself. And as we walk through it, we get a glimpse of who is there and what is going on. Here are two central realities in heaven. Two central realities. This is what we'll look at today in this text. Number one, the sovereign God reigns from his throne. The sovereign God reigns from his throne. And number two, the holy God is worshipped by his creatures. We'll just take that one thing at a time. The sovereign God reigns from his throne. That is what verses 1 through 7 go to great lengths to demonstrate to us in this strange, vivid, visual way. These verses give us a visual depiction of the truth proclaimed in Psalm 99, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. That is a pronouncement of God's sovereign authority and rule over the world and over the angels. And we see that very reality depicted here in chapter 4 in this vision of the throne room of God. The word throne occurs 17 times in chapters 4 and 5. This one two-chapter unit. 17 times we read the word throne. The throne is important. The throne is the point. The picture here reveals to us a universe that is theocentric. God is at the very center of all that was, is, and will be. Indeed, the primary downfall of human beings throughout the ages is that we keep losing sight of that reality and trying to squeeze other things, often just ourselves, into the center of the universe. I'd say that's what happened in the Garden of Eden, and it's been happening ever since. We put other things into the central place, as though the universe revolves around us and our own glory. But indeed, the vision of reality that we see in Revelation 4 is that God and his throne are at the center of the universe. Behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. The throne of God the Father is in the center of this heavenly scene. Everything and everyone else is arranged around his throne. We saw that phrase a number of times as we read through this chapter. Around the throne were elders. Around the throne were creatures. Uh, around the throne was a rainbow. Before the throne. The throne is the centerpiece, the focal point. This is the orientation of heaven, is the throne of God. Now, lest we lose sight of the, the Trinity, the, the triune nature of our God, we have mentioned here of the seven spirits that are before him. Down in verse 
5, it says, uh, Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. We saw that reference to the sevenfold spirit of God back in chapter 1 in the Trinitarian greeting of John uh, for, for this whole letter. Greetings, grace to you from the one who is and is to come, and from the seven spirits of God, and from uh, the Lamb, right? And so this is a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. doesn't mean that he is seven distinct beings. It means that he is complete. He is the fullness of God's power and presence in the Spirit. So God the Father is on the throne, and before the throne is the Spirit of God, the sevenfold Spirit of God. And in chapter 5, which we're not there today, but in chapter 5, the Lamb will draw near and walk to the throne and receive a scroll, a book, from the hand of God the Father, from the throne. And so all three persons of the one triune God are visible here in the throne, around and on the throne. So just so we don't lose sight of the fact that God is three and yet one. John doesn't tell us very much about what God looks like, and that shouldn't surprise us because we're told elsewhere in the Bible that no one can see God and live. We can't really see God. We can't really describe God and what he looks like because it's beyond our capacity. So what he does is sort of describe the, the scene around him and the kinds of the, the glory and the, the beauty that shines forth from him. And so he tells us a few things about his appearance. He says that... It, he had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. He also mentions uh, an emerald when he speaks of a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now these stones, jasper and carnelian and emerald, all had important places within the, the sort of history of Israel. And so those stones were all part of the linen ephod worn by the high priest. There was an aspect of the worship of God uh, under the old covenant where these stones played a role. Uh, these very same stones are depicted as an aspect of Eden's glory in Ezekiel ch chapter 28, verse 17, in a, a pronouncement of judgment against Tyre, the region of Tyre. It says that in Eden he was wearing uh, these glorious stones. And he mentioned carnelian and jasper and emerald. And they are included in the description of the New Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. You'll see the very same stones appear there. So clearly, at least one purpose of these stones being mentioned is that they are beautiful and they are costly and that they have been associated with the glory of God and his worship from the beginning, even in Eden. And he says around the throne there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So perhaps it's a translucent green kind of a, a rainbow. And the rainbow clearly pictures God's covenant with Noah. You can't see a rainbow without thinking in biblical history of the flood where God judged humanity and then the rainbow that he put in the sky to, to, to remind his people that he would safely deliver them from the waters of judgment. William Hendrickson says that this rainbow signifies that for God's children, the storm is over. And from the throne, here's the sounds that we get from the throne in verse 5. From the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. There's a strong and mighty and loud lightning storm going on around the throne of God, emanating from his power and his glory. 
If you can, as you continue through the book of Revelation, you'll find lightning storms like this with loud thunder and rumblings and, and, and uh, striking of lightning. You'll find them associating the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and the seventh bowl as those things are opened or, or poured out. There's a similar thunder and lightning storm associated with those events as well. Tom Schreiner here says, The thunder and lightning communicate the awesomeness of God and the terror of of entering his presence. This is a mighty God that we are seeing upon this throne. And he says in verse 6, before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. The sea in the Bible is often a picture of chaos. In Revelation alone, as you continue through Revelation, the sea represents evil. One of the dragon's beasts will emerge from the sea in chapter 13. Uh, if you look back in biblical history at the Exodus narrative, the sea stood between the beleaguered people of God and their freedom. As they were running out of Egypt and Pharaoh and his armies were behind them, there was a sea in their way. And the way for them to be saved was that God had to conquer, as it were, the chaos of that sea by pushing the waters aside and allowing them safe passage. And so here in the throne room of heaven, the chaos of the sea is shown as still and peaceful as crystal, conquered eternally by the sovereign God who reigns from the throne. And if you flip to the back of Revelation... Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, where John begins to describe the new heavens and the new earth, he says, there was no longer any sea. There is no sea in the new heaven and new earth. The chaos is gone. The storm is over. This is the perspective of heaven. Around God's throne is power and glory and radiance and wonder and the conquering of the chaos and, and sin and hardship of this life. This is the God who sits on the throne. You can make a note to yourself to look later at Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. A lot of this imagery comes right from there. It draws on, on, on some of those images as well. So that's the one seated on the throne and the things emanating from him. But there's some other stuff around the throne. Verse 4, we see around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. Now, it doesn't spell it out for us. Who exactly are these, these elders sitting on these thrones? I believe they most likely represent the redeemed people of God. Twelve tribes of Israel plus twelve apostles of the church equals 24, which is the complete number of all the redeemed through Christ. I believe that these 24 elders represent the church as a whole. All the people, Jew and Gentile, who trusted in Christ and have been thus redeemed. And so these elders are the people of God who are around his throne, oriented to his throne. And they're wearing white garments, which symbolizes purity, symbolizes the, the cleansing accomplished by Christ. And they're wearing golden crowns on their heads, which signifies their, the dominion and rule in the kingdom that 
Christ shares with the saints. And we've seen that reality throughout several of those letters where Jesus promised to the one who conquers, he will reign with me on my throne. And so as these golden crowns on the heads of the elders, I think, represent the shared rule in the kingdom of God that the saints of God enjoy with him. And so here are these 24 thrones and these elders who are exercising their shared rule in the kingdom of God. And then the next group we see around God's throne in verses 6 and 7 are these four living creatures. And they sound very interesting, don't they? Four living creatures. They're full of eyes in front and behind, without and within, right? Eyes all over the place. It says that they have six wings. And these four creatures look like different things. Now, he doesn't say they are these things. One creature was a lion. He says they look like these things. So these are similes. They're comparisons. One creature was like a lion. One was like an ox. One had the face of a man. One was like an eagle. And if you think about what those beings sort of represent, the lion is what? The king of the jungle, the king of beasts, right? He's the, he's the strongest sort of wild animal. The ox would at this time have been the strongest known sort of domesticated animal. They were used for pulling plows and things like that. So strength and, and, and control. The, a man, I think, represents the, the, the wisdom and reasoning and, and perhaps even the, the, the image of God uniquely um, that, that a man would have. And uh, an eagle, just majestic. You know, you, you get the picture of strength that the Bible uses, the, the eagle in flight. You know, uh, Psalm 103 tells us that he renews our strength like the eagles, you know, and so the, the soaring eagle is just this picture of strength and, and freedom and majesty. So I don't think that these creatures are literally these kinds of beings. I think these are comparisons. Again, this is what John sees, and they represent something about who these beings are. These, these beings are probably angels. And I think maybe they even represent the entirety of the angelic host. There's only four of them listed uh, in chapter 4. But I think that symbolically they picture the entirety of the angel armies of God. Some aspects of their description here uh, sound like the, the cherubim that we've seen in a number of places throughout the Bible. The cherubim are the angels that God placed at the Garden of Eden with the flaming sword to guard the entrance to, to Eden. Uh, the cherubim are depicted on the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat. Again, visions in Ezekiel chapter 1 and chapter 10 paint very similar pictures. He sees something very similar to what John sees, described beings that look very similar to this. Other aspects sound more like seraphim, another sort of class or ranking, if you will, of angels. Uh, the, the fact that they have six wings... Uh, sounds like the seraphim that we are introduced to in Isaiah chapter 6. We'll actually come back to Isaiah 6 in just a minute. But Isaiah 6, we see a scene of the throne room of God and these seraphim that have six wings. It said with two they cover their feet, and with two they cover their faces, and with two they flew. These angelic beings, these four beings, are around the throne, and it says they're, they're in each, facing in each direction, as it were. So north, south, east, west, you could, you could gather and so they're full of eyes, and they've got six wings, ready to, always flying, and they are ready to do God's bidding, to quickly go anywhere on earth to serve God's purposes and render aid to his people. So I think that these four living creatures represent the angelic hosts of heaven, God's uh, servants, 
that he sends into the world to do his work. Perhaps some of those that Elisha's servants saw surrounding uh, the mountain and the enemies that were around them. So this is who is on the throne and who is around the throne and what things kind of look like there. And it gives us, if I were to, to, to summarize this in an application, it would be this. Some, here's something to remember. We'll have an application later that's something to do. Here's one that's just something to remember. God is the sovereign ruler over all. God is the sovereign ruler over all. The throne is the centerpiece of this chapter and the starting point of these visions because the throne of God is the most important reality in all of it. To remember that God is enthroned and he is sovereignly ruling over the events of human history and the affairs of men, good and bad, is essential for us to remember. Now, it's also important to note that the vision here begins with the throne before it proceeds to the suffering of God's people on earth. Once you get to chapter 6 and you start to see the seals being opened, you'll find depictions of, of hardship and violence and, and bloodshed and, and hurting people, even the people of God undergoing trial and tribulation. And it starts with this before it goes to the, the pestilence and the war and the violence and the chaos which is the grace of God, is it not? Imagine if the vision began in chapter 6 with war and bloodshed and martyrdom as it's depicted there. Without the image of God's throne, without the settled knowledge of His divine sovereignty over the events on the earth, this would seem like just complete chaos. The wheels have come off. God has forgotten His people. God is not able to help them. There'd be no other conclusions to draw, but the vision begins with a throne. A throne stood in heaven. So when you read about the pain, and you read about the chaos, and you read about the violence, and you read about the martyrdom of his people, remember the throne. God is on his throne in the presence of great evil, persecution, suffering. It is deadly to forget that all that comes into our lives has first been filtered through the throne of our sovereign God. Psalm 119, verse 71 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Suffering and pain and wickedness in the earth and the persecution of his people seems bad unless we remember that there's a throne in heaven. And that God is seated on that throne and everything that comes into our lives is from His good and loving and wise heart. Christian, take heart. Your God is reigning from the throne. Even if your worst fear were to come true, you can know for certain that it is part of God's wise, loving purposes for you and for His new creation. You can trust Him. God is sovereign over all. So the first thing we've seen in this chapter then is uh, that the sovereign God reigns from his throne. The next thing we see in verses 8 through 11 is that the holy God is worshipped by his creatures. The holy God is worshipped by his creatures. If you were to ask the question, what's happening in heaven? Chapter 4 suggests at least a really substantial part of the answer is God is worshipped. 
His creatures unceasingly sing praise to Him, ascribing honor and glory and thanks to His name. In fact, we see two distinct songs in this chapter. We'll get a third song in chapter 5. I don't want to rush ahead. But there's two distinct songs here in chapter 4. The first song comes from the four living creatures, that is, the angels, right? the angelic uh, hosts and servants of God. If you look in verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the endless song of heaven from the angels. They are declaring the holiness of God. I want to look just a moment at the, the vision of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. This is uh, Isaiah's own sort of commissioning scene. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. That sounds a little bit like rumblings of thunder and peals of lightning, doesn't it? So there's this image in Isaiah chapter 6 that I think the reader in Revelation 4 is expected to remember, to recall. We have these angelic beings surrounding God on his throne, and they are singing to God of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. His eternal being, his self-existing nature is what they celebrate. His holiness, his uniqueness, his otherness. There's no one like God. This is what they are singing about together. So in Isaiah 6, which is written in Hebrew, the Hebrew language does not have a superlative form. Like where we would say something is good and something is better and something else is best. The Hebrew language doesn't have that possibility. So he could, we might expect him to say, God is the holiest. But, that's, but it says, God is holy, holy, holy. Because that's the only way that they had to construct the superlative, the, the highest sense in Hebrew. So God is holy. God is holy or God is holiest. Right? God is holy, holy, holy. There is none like him. There is none as powerful. There is none as pure. There is none as wise. None as righteous. No one is like this God. And holiness is the only attribute of God that the scripture ever repeats in this threefold way. We never read God is loving, loving, loving. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. God is wise, wise, wise. We, always, we only hear God is holy, holy, holy. There's a sense in which, of course, his holiness is a summation of all of his various perfections. But holiness is the only way, the only attribute that we see the scriptures give this sort of superlative ascription to. He is holy, holy, holy. And the angels can't get over it. Day and night they don't stop singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God 
Almighty. And the second song comes from the elders. Remember, that's, that's the church, the redeemed people of God. The second song in verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him. So while the angels are doing this, while the angels are singing and celebrating the holiness of God, the elders, the, the redeemed people of God, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. Look, I know you gave me this crown to rule with you, but I'm not worthy of it. This is yours. Yours is the rule. Yours is the power. And here's what they sing. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. The basis of God's worthiness that is specifically celebrated in this song is, is God's creation. That God has spoken and willed the universe into being. Worthy are you. There is nobody like this. There is no one else who is worthy of honor and glory and power. And let me just note, as a secondary thought here, the importance of singing as a means of God's people worshiping Him together. It's happening in heaven. The first thing that John sees when he walks through the door into the throne room is angels are singing praise to God. And the elders, the, the redeemed people of God, are singing praise to God of His holiness, of His worthiness. You'll find a new song in chapter 5 that we'll talk about next week. Singing is an important aspect of the life of heaven. Singing, indeed, is an important aspect of the life of God's people here and now. He commands us to sing. Might sound a little strange. What, what king commands his people to sing, to sing songs? But yet we are. The psalms themselves are, of course, the Holy Spirit-inspired songbook of the church. And they are filled with commands. Sing God's praise. Sing to Him. In the New Testament, the book of Colossians, chapter 3.16, tells us, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So our singing is even to each other, right? We, we, we encourage one another mutually as we sing the praises of God and declare the gospel of Christ. Singing is an important part of our life together as his people. Not just now, but in eternity. If you have a hard time with this, you'll have eternity to get used to it. Because singing God's praise will be a substantial aspect of our lives together in the eternal kingdom. Let me apply this. Something to do. I told you earlier, something to remember when God is on his throne. Here's something to do. Worship God as holy. Worship God as holy. Worship is the only fitting response to a revelation of this majestic, holy God. Worship is our response to God's revelation of Himself. And He reveals Himself here in power and glory and holiness and worthiness. There is none like Him. Heaven can't get over Him. Our response ought to be the same. Our response should be worship. And I don't just mean songs. I don't just mean we should get together and sing songs about him. We should, and we do. We do that every Sunday. 
But our lives should be characterized by worship. Our hearts and our minds should be saturated with the glory of God. Our lives should be oriented around His honor and praise. What we do and what we say and how we spend our time should all be aiming at what can I do or say or how can I spend my time in a way that will bring honor and glory and praise to God. That is how we should live our lives. It causes us to ask some practical questions. How do we worship God in our work? How do we conduct ourselves in the workplace in a way that brings honor and glory to God? How do we worship God in our times of leisure and recreation? How I spend my downtime? Is there a way to worship God in my off days? How do we worship God in our marriages, in our parenting? How do we worship God in our relationships with neighbors, co-workers, family members? How do we worship God in our financial stewardship? The spending and saving and using of the money that God entrusts to us. How do we use our money to worship God? How do we worship God with our verbal witness for Christ to those in our lives? Speaking of Him, pointing others to Jesus. Every aspect of our lives should be about the worship of this holy God. There was none like Him. His revelation of himself to us demands a fitting response. As Isaac Watts famously said in his hymn, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is the right response to God. Just as worship of the holy God is the central activity of the angels and the redeemed in heaven, so should it be the central activity of our lives now. Elisha's servant was given a momentary glimpse of the invisible spiritual reality that stood behind the material world. And that vision gave him confidence concerning God's protection and provision. And the story in 2 Kings 6 ends with the Syrian army struck blind by the Lord, led down to the house of the king of Israel, fed a feast, and then sent home. And then Syria never attacks Israel again. That didn't go like we expected. That's not the kind of victory you assume you're going to read about. But it is what God provided, the gracious way that he provided for his people in that time. The glimpse into the spiritual realm that we see in Revelation 4 should fill us with the same confidence. God protects and provides for his children. Our enemies cannot ultimately destroy us. The decisive victory over the spiritual forces that seek our harm was achieved not by military might. Again, maybe not the salvation we expected, but through the suffering death and victorious resurrection of our King. Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15 say, And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How did Jesus defeat the powers of evil? He disarmed them. 
He triumphed over them. He put them to shame, not through an act of military strength, but through an act of self-sacrifice, of self-giving love. And as Christ suffered on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead to defeat hell and the grave once and for all, he provided everything that we need. Indeed, he provided the, the pathway to this throne. He provided access to this holy God. We can come before him now, not in cowering fear, but as children who are welcome at his table. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen King, and you can be sure that the sufferings and trials that you face in this world can only ultimately lead you to the throne of God, where you'll join the eternal song of the angels and the redeemed. Let's pray.